Welcome. We're glad you're here. We're in Psalm 119. We are going to look at a message called, This is My Comfort. We're looking at verses 49 through 64, and we're going to tackle two Hebrew letters. You'll take note, the Zayin and the Ket. Uh, so Psalm 119, beginning in verse 49, this is my comfort. Uh, I mentioned to you that the 22 Hebrew letters are at the top of each of these stanzas. Each of them have eight verses. And um, I have a couple images for you tonight so that you can look at the actual Hebrew letter and see what it is and what it looks like. I will plant this uh, in your heart and mind at the outset that the two images that come to mind for me tonight with these Hebrew letters are a sword and a sheepfold. And what they speak of is really offensive or even defensive protection against like temptation and stuff. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the idea of a fence or being fenced in or protected. Both ideas are actually in our text tonight. So we're going to jump into Psalm 119. This is my comfort. Would you pray with me, Father? Thank you for all those who have come out tonight. Those who may be watching via live stream. Thank you that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. In fact, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from your sight. Everything is open and laid bare before the one to whom we must give an account. But thank you that the one to whom we must give an account is also our great Savior, our great God and King, our great high priest who, it goes on to say in Hebrews 4, intercedes for his people, pours out mercy and grace and strength in time of need. Uh, I have a brother from years past who used to say to me often, I'm a needy man. <laughs> I need the Lord so desperately. Tonight we need you, Lord, so speak to us. Our hearts want to be in tune with your spirit. Give us ears to hear and a heart to amend our ways to yours by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say amen? amen. Now, Psalm 119 is broken down into groups of eight verses, all with the headings of different Hebrew letters. We've been through several of them. And tonight, you'll notice at the top of verse 49, Psalm 119, you have a zine or a zayin. And this is kind of like our Z. And one thing that I mentioned to you is that every verse, all eight verses in each of the stanzas start with that letter. And it's not clear to us in our English, but whenever I get to the word that actually starts with the letter, I'll try to point it out to you. But let me show you the image of the Zayin or the Zayin. We're gonna put it up on the screen for you. And it is a image of a sword or a axe or a weapon, you can see how uh, it developed over time. You have kind of an e uh, early Hebrew symbol on the left, and then you can kind of see how things developed and then ultimately came, became modern Hebrew. You can even see on the far top right how the modern Hebrew uh, pictograph, if you will, does look like an axe. And then there is kind of that, that middle or later Hebrew uh, second from the right would be kind of like the image of a sword. And you'll see it two ways uh, depicted as a uh, image. And let me just remind you that when Moses would have originally written this, he would have written it instead of left to right, he would have written from right to left and used something like what you would see in Chinese kind of symbols. A simple symbol would convey an idea. And so the, the Hebrew language is very powerful in that way in that the letter can convey an idea that can, you can kind of start walking it out or you can start digging down and see depth. And one of the things that comes to mind for me as I look at the Zion, let me just uh, define it for you. It looks like an ax to cut or a sword. And Dr. Seekins, who's written a whole book on the Hebrew picture language, says the way you could define it is the, the letter Zayin is the weapon the hand moves. And for those of you who have studied the Word of God for some time, you know that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. That's part of our armor. And it's been said that 
all of the other pieces of the armor are really defensive. We have a helmet, we have a breastplate, we have a belt, we have shoes. But the sword of the spirit is, Paul says, is the word of God. And the word word there is not logos in Greek. It's actually the Greek word rhema. And what it means is a specific word for a specific moment or a specific situation. It's a rhema word. What that means is that when Jesus was uh, tempted by the devil, he didn't just throw out a Bible verse. He used a specific verse to counter that specific attack. If you're the son of God or since you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus replies, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When you get to know your Bible, you'll be able to use your Bible for defensive purposes when you're facing a temptation or to stand on a promise if you're going through a difficult season and maybe you need to be reminded of a promise of God. You can stand upon that. You can allow the word to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path in whatever situation you may find yourself. And so each of the verses under the Zion, there's eight of them, in Psalm 119 starts with the seventh letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Zion. The letter means a weapon. These eight verses tell us that God has given us the powerful weapons of his name and his word. The result is that his statutes become our songs and even our songs in the night. Let's look at verse 49. The psalmist says, remember the word to your servant in or upon which you have made me hope. Now the word in verse 49, remember your word, or you could say it this way. The psalmist is saying, Lord, remember the promise that you've made to me. And one thing that we need to remember is that when we pray, we can pray back the promises of God. Let me explain. Sometimes when you're trying to learn how to pray, it can be kind of a an odd thing, and, and you, you, if you've ever been in that group where, you know, there's a bunch of new Christians, and you're all learning how to pray, and there's that pressure of praying the right way, and having to speak out loud, and all of that, it can be kind of a, a tense thing, and you, you sometimes think, will God only hear me if I speak in the old King James English, and what do I need to do, and one thing that you can know is that when you pray, you should pray often with an open Bible. And when God makes a promise to you and you see that promise, you can pray that back to him. Lord, you've, you've promised me and you can fill in the blank, whether it is eternal life, whether it is that I don't have to fear, whether it is that you will illumine my path, you will grant me wisdom. You can fill in the blank, but you can stand upon the promises. And here, the psalmist says, remember the word or the promise to your servant. Now, that's important. I'm your servant, and upon that word, you have made me hope. This is my comfort. This is my hope. So as I navigate life and I encounter different situations, my own personal struggles, the world, the flesh, the enemy, things that uh, today are happening that I cannot even believe they're happening. I almost feel as, as if we live in Sodom now, if you know what I'm saying. The things uh, like at breakneck speed or coming left and right, things that you can't even, couldn't even imagine some years back are now at the forefront. And when you look at stuff like that, you, you want to cry out to God, and, and here he cries out, remember the promise. Remember the word that you have made. Maybe you're in a tough spot tonight. Maybe there's someone you know that's sick. Maybe you're going through a, a, an emotionally difficult time, whatever it is. Notice the end of verse 49, that promise, that word in which you have made me hope. God's word brings comfort, and it brings hope. It, it, when I hold it, when I use it, when I read it, it infuses hope into my life. I'm standing on the promises. Spurgeon says this way, says it this way, but God, let us speak with reverence when he gives a promise and binds himself with cords of his own making. God binds himself down to such and such a course when he says that such and such a thing shall be. Hence, 
When you grasp the promise, you get a hold on God. It's power, authority, light, uh, comfort are all major themes. The psalmist is the psalmist basically says, God has condescended to give you a promise that you can grab onto and thus have hope or renewed or refreshed hope, amen? And I need renewed and refreshed hope every single moment of every single day. And so the NIV puts it this way, you have given me hope. And what was the word by which God had given him hope? Well, here's a thought, this is, Romans 15, four and five, write it down for your notes. It says, whatever was written in earlier times, Romans 15, four and five, was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in Romans 15, 13, he says, now may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this God wants to give us hope. And one of the main ways he gives that hope to us is through his word. That's where all of his promises are recorded. Amen. That's where the Holy Spirit allows things to jump off the page that might comfort and encourage our hearts in a moment of struggle. And so the psalmist says, This, your promise to me, your faithfulness, this is my comfort. Look at verse 50. In my affliction, that your word has revived me. Now in Romans 15, 13, God is called the God of hope. In 2 Corinthians 1 3, he's called the God of all comfort. Amen. Who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we can comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. The God of hope, this is who he is, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. This life is filled with those kinds of afflictions. Sometimes we have smooth sailing, sometimes we have seasons of affliction. And the psalmist is obviously going through something because he says, this is my comfort. He doesn't say after my affliction. He doesn't say I'm looking back to it. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction. And I'm sure that you have noticed that many times that when you pray and God gives you a, a, a word of hope or a promise, it's not necessarily that the affliction automatically goes away but that he strengthens you in and through the affliction. It's like Daniel, when he's in the lion's den, the, the angel enters into the den, or the three Hebrew youths who are in the fire, there's a fourth one in the fire with them, and he's real shiny. There you go. That's a little veggie tales for you. And so it's not always that the Lord lifts my affliction, this is my comfort, look at 50, in my affliction, that your word has revived me. If you have an ESV, it says your promise gives me life. The NIV says your promise preserves my life. And the New King James says your word has given me life. It's a life-giving word. Proverbs 15:31 says, he whose ear listens to a life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 calls Jesus, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. And the word of God is life-giving. It imparts life. Now, what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is that it, it has a power unique to itself because it is an extension of God himself that is able to bring light and hope and revival and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you could call it a breath of fresh air into your situation, can stabilize you in the storm. Have you ever just maybe read one Bible verse and it can change your whole perspective? That's what God's word does. And this affliction that this, psalmist is in, we don't know the exact author, speaks of a time of depression, trouble. It could mean poverty, 
misery, or humiliation. And I want you to see how God uses affliction as we look at a few verses in Psalm 119. Look at verse 67. It says these words, before I was afflicted, verse 67, just look ahead, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. Have you ever said that before? That I may learn your statutes. Look at verse 75. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have, what? Afflicted me. Oh, may thy loving kindness comfort me according to thy word to thy servant. There it is again. There's an affliction, but there's a comfort in the promise. And then look ahead to uh, verse 107 in Psalm 119. It says, I'm exceedingly afflicted Revive me, O Lord, according to thy word. So the word of God has the power to revive. We've been talking a lot about revival in the nation, in the church, but we gotta start with individuals, right? Revival doesn't just happen. It starts with individual believers who are revived and then become on fire and start breathing life into others, You can't give people life, but you can give them the message of life. You can't give people life. Only God can do that. But you can impart a word that might bring edification. Amen? See, your words can either build up or tear down. I don't know the last time that you shared a Bible verse with someone by text or, you know, maybe in a, maybe you were meeting with them and the Lord gave you a word for that person. And of course, you want to be careful with that, but... But if you get a word laid on your heart, a Bible verse that you can impart, what a beautiful thing that is. The psalmist is talking about benefits that come even in the midst of affliction. You might say, well, what was the affliction that the psalmist was going through? Well, verse 51, I think, tells us. The arrogant or the proud utterly deride me. This is back in verse 51. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. The NIV has the arrogant mock me without restraint. And we don't know the full uh, story of the affliction that the psalmist was going through, but we have at least a clue here that he was being mocked and probably being mocked for his faith. And this is our world today. It is becoming a, a common thing for mockery to happen toward Christians. In fact, I will tell you, I'm in my mid-50s right now, and I believe that I have lived through three periods in the U.S. in my short five-plus decades. I believe I was born in a largely Christian nation, that that nation became a post-Christian nation, and now that nation has become largely an anti-Christian nation in about 50-plus years. So there are things unfolding and it doesn't mean that we're gonna slip off the edge. We could have another great awakening. We could have another great revival. But we desperately need it. Amen? And so the psalmist says that there's mockers, arrogant, proud mockers who may be mocking him because of his faith in the Lord. And this rings for me to the book of Job, when Job said to his so-called comforters, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? These 10 times, Job 19, one through three, you have insulted me and you are not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. And Job, I think speaking maybe for a lot of Christians over the years, including David and others, had people who mocked him. Even Job's wife said, curse God and die. Why do you still hold on to your righteousness or your faith? And so it's hard. You know, we might, you might be in a situation right now where you have mockers at work, in your family, and they don't let up. And this is the, the language here. They mock me without restraint, End of 51, yet I don't turn aside from your Torah, your law. 
I'm not going anywhere despite what they say I'm holding on to your promises. Isaiah 50 verse four says, of the Messiah, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Can I suggest that you and I would decide that part of our spiritual week would look like this, that our prayers would shift a little bit into, if you're not doing this already, Lord, how could I give a word to a weary sojourner that may be around me today? Amen? And you've got to be thinking a little bit outside yourself when you do that, right? And so many of you are really good at that. And you've done that for me many times with texts and wonderful cards and stuff like that. And it's such a blessing. Your words can build up or they can tear down. I want you to hold your place in Psalm 119, turn all the way to Ephesians 4. Let me show you a familiar passage, but let me just give you an application of how this works. You can choose what you're gonna do with this small member, which is your tongue. You can use it for good or for ill. And this is Ephesians 4.29, and here's what it says. It says, let, Ephesians 4.29, no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, that means to build somebody up, according to the need, you gotta understand the need of the moment, much like we talked about the rhema word, you gotta understand the need and what word might be needed to edify, Ephesians 4.29, the need of the moment that it may give what? Grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Isn't it interesting that the grieving of the Holy Spirit comes right after the idea of an unwholesome word that would then hurt somebody and grieve the Spirit of God who lives in you and we would assume lives in them. Because this is being written to a church or a community that has a chance to build up or tear down. This could be in a close relationship like marriage. It could be in a friendship. And here it is. An unwholesome word is a putrid, rotten word. The best illustration I've ever heard of this Greek word is if you've ever had fruit in one of those fruit drawers for too long, like peaches, You'll notice that if one of the peaches goes bad it, and it touches other fruit in there, the corruption spreads. And this is what happens with the mouth. When you speak a corrupt, degrading, I'm gonna tear down this person word, it hurts them and often spreads the old childhood rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, is a lie. Words matter. God has manifested himself as the word of God. Words have power. Within the tongue is the power of life and death. And so this is a good application so if we want to look at the opposite of grieving the Holy Spirit, if we can grieve him, what would we do if we brought a good word to somebody? Might the Holy Spirit find joy in that? Might it please the Lord? Because the opposite of grief, to my mind, is joy. Good, positive. Let me ask you, in the last week, what do you think you've done more of? And all God's people said. <laughs> Back to Psalm 119. I have remembered your ordinances from old. And uh, I have remembered, it starts with the Zion, just to give you one example. And comfort myself. Despite what's going on with this hurtful uh, mockery, from the proud, the psalmist looks back to God's word and finds comfort, Psalm 119, verse 52. For some of you, it, you may need to go back to some verses that 
you started with in your Christian journey. I've met a lot of people along the way that fell away from their faith. Sometimes I meet them at memorial services. Sometimes I meet them out in the community. And sometimes one Bible verse that they learned in Sunday school or at a Christian camp can bring a flood of light back into their life. You get away from the word of God, you remove yourself from the hope and the light that he wants to give you. Spurgeon says, the grinning of the proud will not trouble us when we remember how the Lord dealt with their predecessors in bygone periods. He destroyed them at the deluge or the flood. He confounded them at Babel. He drowned them at the Red Sea and drove them out of Canaan. He has in all ages bared his arm against the proud and broken them as potter's vessels. People seem so impressive and so powerful. But Dr. Walter Martin one time said, God presides at all their funerals. Because the proud, if they're lucky, are gonna get 100 years on this planet. But most will not. I was just on my computer earlier and just saw something of an actress that just died at 57, was in some movie. I can't even remember her name, but those things are on your screen every single day. People live and die. And the question is, what are you banking on? Where are you gonna go? On what promises have you built your life? What is directing your life? I find comfort in them, says the psalmist. I, I comfort myself when I look back at your ordinances from old. I find comfort. The book of Nehemiah is a, about a rebuilding project and the walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed. And Nehemiah, who's basically a, a layman, he's the cupbearer to the king, but he's not a, a priest or a prophet. He has it on his heart to go and rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah's name, get this, means... Yahweh comforts. And when all other things fail, here's what I can know. Yahweh comforts me. This world, sometimes, you know, you can find comfort in little things, but in the end, I find comfort in God and his promises. In fact, the Holy Spirit is called what? The comforter. And so, even though he says this, he's, in the next verse, he says, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. I find comfort, but then in the next moment, moment, I'm mad. Ever have an hour like that? You go from comfort to anger. Uh, I do that sometimes when I watch uh, news broadcasts and I see the ignorance of people in our culture <laughs> and... They don't realize much of the history of our country and things like Memorial Day being mocked by people who don't understand how many people shed their blood that you could have the freedom to say something stupid into a microphone and be ignorant about your own country's history. I mean, this is, this is what we got. And sometimes I find myself having some burning indignation. There was a man interviewed who was on the Indianapolis. I think he's uh, in his 90s now. And he was inter interviewed by David Barton and um, their ship was torpedoed and he was in a group of about 80 soldiers. And of those 80 soldiers, I think eight of them survived he enlisted at 17 and served his country. Uh, if you think about the boys that stormed Normandy and those who tried to stop Hitler and tried to deal with things that were happening around the world, they shed their blood. And when they're interviewed, they say stuff like this. They said, I shed my blood or I watched friends die for the sake of the country and also that people could have a barbecue today and live in a free nation. And they're called the greatest generation for a reason. There are things 
that make my emotions run the gamut from things where I see mockery and pride, mockery of God and his people. And then in the next moment, I find comfort and hope and love in his promises. That could be within the span of five minutes. Burning indignation can seize me because of the wicked who forsake your Torah. Yet, 54 says, your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Now, here's something I'll just tell you I try to do. When burning indignation seizes me, (laughs) I try to turn on a song that would put me into the right frame of mind. Can I get a witness? So you might have your radio dial on talk radio and maybe whatever is being talked about. And then you turn over to a worship song. What's that do for you? You can go like this. You can go, burning indignation to, oh, thank you, Lord. You're good. The, the world can be messed up, but you're good. Your statutes are my songs. Statutes is another way to say your word, your law, your your revelation is my song. I'm a pilgrim, end of 54, in this world. Thank God I'm just passing through. (laughs) Now, I am so appreciative of the world that God made. I agree with Louis Armstrong when he's saying words about this is a beautiful world and God's fingerprints are everywhere. And there's sunsets and sacred nights and all millions of forms of plants and animals and the ocean and a bird in flight. And, and yet there's things that are not so good. I was in my kitchen uh, yesterday or the day before and I think I was getting a cup of coffee and I heard... And a bird flew into our kitchen window, and he didn't make it. So I said a quick blessing over him. <laughs> your, song, your statutes are my songs. I love music. And I don't want to forget that Psalm 119 is a song. Amen? We're not just studying like... A, just verses. This was actually originally sung. I've been listening to songs from Psalms for many years, like Psalm 23, 46, Psalm 84, Psalm 91, Psalm 130, and probably many more. Elihu says in Job 35:10, You give God is my maker, and he gives songs in the night. Oh Lord, I remember your name in the night 55 and keep your law. This has become mine. I hope you can say that. That I observe your precepts. I remember your name in the night. Do you remember, was it Paul and Silas were in that uh, Philippian jail? Acts 16, 25 says they were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Do you know, we live in a world where It says that Jesus came to set the prisoners free, but there's a lot of people in prison. They're not in a physical prison. Everybody know what I'm saying? They're still in a prison, though, and Jesus came to make them free. And songs can express the gospel, songs that are given in the night. Sometimes we wake up at night, and some of you may have some insomnia or whatever it may be, and you wake up in the night, And your first temptation may be to turn on the TV or pick up your phone or whatever you might do. But it is good that you remember God's name in the night and maybe even start praying for some people if you wake up at night. This has become mine. This is who I am. I observe your precepts. This is what I'm living for. I love that phrase, it's become mine. He's realized the promise. I reflect, New Living Translation, on, at night on who you are. Verse 55, New Living. I reflect at night on who you are. O Lord, therefore I obey your instructions. This is how I spend my life. 
obeying your commandments. Spurgeon says, if we have no memory for the name of Jehovah, we are not likely to remember his commandments. If we do not think of him secretly, we shall not obey him openly. As a man thinks, as a woman thinks, so he is, so she is. The more you fill your mind with the things of God, reflect on who he is, the more it's gonna come out. That's the Zayin. We're gonna move to the Ket. <laughs> Everybody say Ket. All right, let's throw it up on the screen if you, uh, if you got it back there. All right, so you got the early Hebrew and then middle, late, and modern. So the Ket, Ket, <laughs> looks like a fence. The word of God is a sword. You can use it for offensive purposes, to preach the gospel, to defend against temptation. And it's a fence. It protects you. Uh, this is where I got the, the concept of the sheepfold, where the shepherd guards the door so that the wolves don't get at you. So the word of God is like a fence. God wants you to be free, but free within boundaries. There are biblical boundaries given for your good. If you go beyond the boundary, if you get out of the sheepfold, the shepherd can't protect you as well, right? You become prey to the wolves. I have a picture in my office. Uh, it's Psalm 91, and it's got, uh, it depicts Jesus with his shepherd's staff, and there's a little sheepy leaned up against his leg as close as it can get. And in the distance, there are two wolves standing on top of the rock. And they want to eat that little sheep for lunch. And that little sheep is pressed up against the shepherd. And the shepherd in the picture is looking towards the wolves like, you ain't going to touch him. You ain't going to touch her. Because they're right by my side. And if you come, you're going to have to go through me. And it won't end well for you. And so you have the ket. It speaks of a fence, an inner room, something that's private. Seekin says it means to be sealed and protected by the fence. It's the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, or alphabet called ket. Each of these verses in the eighth stanza of the psalm, Psalm 119, start with this letter. The letter means offense, and these eight verses tell that God's tell of God's favor and grace and word are a fence that keeps us safe and keeps the enemies out. Keeps us safe within and the enemies out. Let's move through the verses. The Lord is my portion. This is how it opens. I have promised to keep your words. When I know that the Lord is my portion, then I know what really matters in my life. Let me just this is in rapid fire. I looked this up. The Lord is my, here's what I found. The Lord is my rock, Psalm 18.1. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my light, Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my strength and my shield, Psalm 28.7. The Lord is my strength and my song, Psalm 118.14. Hebrews 13.6 says the Lord is my helper. And Psalm 119 verse 57 says the Lord is is my portion. What does that mean? It has the idea of a possession. It has the idea of also, he's what I need. The psalmist may be comparing this to the Levites. The Levites had no land possession. The Lord was their possession. When you are going through something, can you say the Lord is my portion? This is the way Spurgeon put it. Or would you say, my purse is my portion. My ability is my portion. My reputation, my stature, my abilities, whatever it may be is my portion. Or can you say the Lord is my portion? I sought your favor with all my heart, 58. Be gracious to me according to your word. To seek God's favor is literally to seek his face. This is our part we seek him, and he pours grace. I considered my ways, 59, and turned my feet to your testimonies. 
if you want the Lord to be your portion, you must turn your feet to his testimonies. Amen? You gotta make a decision. Repentance is a word that means you do a 180. You've been walking away from God. You turn towards his testimonies. You stop doing it your way and you do it his way. Amen. You turn your feet. You change your mind. Change is not going to come into your life until you turn your feet toward the Lord. And he's going to leave that to you. Now, once you decide to turn, he's going to give you every spiritual resource you need. But in my understanding of Scripture, he's not going to force you to turn. You need to turn your feet. Amen? You need to live for what God says is right and true. He wants you to read his word, but you got to make your move to your Bible. Amen? He wants you to be at church on Wednesday nights. <laughs> but you got to come. You got to get in your automobile <laughs> and drive to the church and receive, right? You can see we've got some room tonight. So if there's any other pilgrims out there that you want to invite for next Wednesday, you could tell them there's space. You got to turn your feet. I considered my ways and I turned my feet. And then once I did that, I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. Once you turn your feet, you got to get moving. The old saying is God doesn't steer a parked car. But some of you have run into a parked car. <laughs> But we won't go there tonight. <laughs> Once you turn your feet, you got to get moving. Remember when they're at the Red Sea and God says, don't pray now. Get going, man. There's a time to pray and a time to get moving. Once you've turned your feet towards the testimonies, start walking. But I turned. Good. That's a turn in the right direction. Now start walking. Amen? God wants you to walk with him. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Oh, God, help me walk with you. Help me seek your face and favor with all my heart, 58. Help me turn my feet, 59. And help me not delay to keep your commandments. Get me moving in the right direction. It's been pointed out by a commentator that when God was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot, who planted there, Genesis 19.16 says, he delayed, he hesitated. And the angels were saying, get out of here. Because this place is going to be destroyed. And Lot delayed. He hesitated. He turned his feet the right direction. <laughs> oh, you're going to burn the city down? <laughs> he told his sons-in-law, this place is going to be destroyed. Get out. And you know what they thought? They thought he was joking. And they got wrapped up in the judgment. Sunday, we're going to talk about the plague of hail. And the difference between people in Egypt at that plague was whether or not they uh, feared the word of the Lord. God sent down leaflets. The hail is coming. I'm just kidding. I don't know if leaflets came. <laughs> but there was a warning given. Put your animals inside. Get out of the field. The hail's coming. And, and a bunch of people died. They didn't believe it. Lot's sons-in-laws laughed at him. He hesitated, and so the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord, Genesis 19, 16, was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. Lot hesitated, and they said, let's go now. 
And Lot's wife, what'd she do? She looked back. And the best way I understand the text is she got wrapped up in the judgment. She hesitated. But who hesitated first? Her husband. And God said, don't look back. Lot planted his family there. Now, he was vexed by the unprincipled behavior of godless men. You know, day in and day out, Peter tells us that his heart was broken at what he saw was going on in his city, but he hesitated. Why did he hesitate? I'm sure he loved many people in that city. I'm sure he was heartbroken about what was going on. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, 61, but I have not forgotten your law. They want to entrap me, but I'm going to be fenced off by your word. The cords describe ropes that attempt to drag us into sin. Sin so easily entangles us. Isn't it amazing how quick our flesh can grab a hold of us? We can, we can go from feeling like we're doing really well spiritually to just going, is that the same guy, <laughs> the same gal? Get cut off in the church parking lot, someone takes your maple bar at the church donut thing. This, these are all personal confessions. Anyway, at midnight, we're winding down, I shall rise to give thanks to you. Once again, in the middle of the night, because of your righteous ordinances. This is the way you fence yourself in, brethren. I am a companion of all those who fear you. If you're going to be a person wielding the sword and staying in the sheepfold, you've got to be in fellowship. Time is over for the virtual church. I'm not talking about people who have a legitimate reason to be home. But everybody who's not in that category, get back to church. You say, why? I like being in my jammies, drinking my hot cocoa, flipping back and forth between the church service and the ball game. Yeah, I'm sure you're very connected there. Somebody once said that virtual church is like watching one of those fireplaces you know, and you're on your TV. It looks cool and it even makes the crackling noise, but you ain't gonna get warm by it. And if you're not in fellowship, which is the idea of having companionship with like-minded people who fear the Lord, you ain't gonna make it. You're not gonna make it. I have a friend who studies a lot of Hebrew and we were talking about a teaching on temptation and he, he said, what are you gonna teach God's people, Pastor Michael? And I gave him things, you know, stay in the word of God and guard yourself. And, and he said something interesting to me. He said, what about fellowship? Do you think fellowship has a role in keeping you from falling to temptation? Yes, it does. We live in a very individualistic society and right now, all the verses we read right now, you might say, boy, that sounds like a very individual psalm. The psalmist is talking about his relationship with God and all this stuff. But now he says, I'm a companion of all those who fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And those who keep your precepts because bad company corrupts good morals. And all it takes to drift is to do nothing. I surfed a lot of my teenage years and I would paddle out at 22nd Street and 18th Street at Newport Beach and I'd sit on my surfboard waiting for a good set to come in and hoping that no fins would come on by. If there were dolphins, that, that was okay. And sometimes I noticed that I'd be sitting on my surfboard and I'd be looking out towards the oncoming waves and I would notice I drifted a long way from where my stuff was and maybe my, some of my friends and I did nothing because all it takes to drift is to do nothing. See, God is calling us to take the sword, to be fenced in, to be in companionship with those who love God and his ways. And then he concludes by saying, the resources are there, brethren, because the earth is full of your loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word hased, God's covenant love. It, the earth is full of it. 
It's everywhere. If you want God's resources to live this way, he and his loving kindness are everywhere. There's nowhere that you will go that you cannot call upon the name of the Lord and he will not hear you and give you what you need in the moment to make it through. Amen? Amen. Whether you're on the other side of the world, whether you're in a tough spot in terms of you know temptation or whatever it may be, the earth is filled with God's loyal love, his hased, his doors of refuge, and you can enter into them and you can cry out, oh Lord, teach me. Teach me your statutes. Teach me your word. This, brethren, is a benediction. It's like a closing prayer. The earth is full of your loving kindness and then a cry, oh Lord, teach me. Teach me your ways. Since the earth is filled with your hased, your loyal covenant love, since I know your love will never fade away, your love will endure forever, nothing will ever separate me from your love Your word is a sword. Your word is a fence. It can be used for offense and defense to preach truth, to defend against temptation, to protect me from evil. The sword and the sheepfold. Father, thank you for the sword and the fence. Uh, Two wonderful images of your living word. You gave it to us, 66 books. We've just touched on just a few sections in Psalm 119 and found glorious things about who we are, how we should live, provisions you've made for your people. We're very grateful. We're very humbled by that. Thank you for allowing us to have these provisions from you, a sword and a fence, a sword and a sheepfold. Help us to wield those things well. Help us to find refuge in the shadow of your presence and wings, and then also help us to be good at wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Help us be effective. Now, if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this would be a wonderful time to enter into the sheepfold and be saved, to come into that place of safety. Maybe you found yourself beat up and uh, felt like The wolves have gotten the best of you of late and you just want to come home. He is a prayer away. But he is going to call you to turn your feet and to not hasten. Don't delay. The devil will tell you tomorrow. The Bible says now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation.